Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, please do open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. When we come to the, the penultimate section of Jesus' teaching, we've got just one more passage after this morning, and we'll have then officially finished out Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been taking our time through this section because it is such a critical teaching of Jesus. It is his first uninterrupted teaching in all of the Gospel of Luke. And so it is imperative that we slow down and take the time to see what he is instructing. And so we'll not quite finish his sermon this morning, but he has a very important message for us to hear. This is a a crucial portion of his sermon. And because he gives some warnings that I fear many in the church have transgressed. In fact, I'd say that it's a refusal to heed these words or uh, perhaps just an apathetic indifference that I think offers much explanatory power for the state of the church in our day. And so before we get into it, let me read for you the section that we'll be in this morning, which again is Luke chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 39 through 45, just seven brief verses that will control our thoughts this morning. Again, chapter 6, 39 through 45, here's what Luke records under the inspiration of the Spirit of Jesus' own words. He writes, and he also spoke a parable to them, saying, A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? The pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Well, perhaps a statement that you hear said often, um, both inside and then certainly outside the church is that you ought not to judge. You hear this all the time, especially when it's uh, convenient for a person to say such a thing. Typically when a person is confronted or they're being challenged on a certain issue or something that they're saying or thinking, certainly a decision that they're about to make, uh, it becomes tremendously convenient to just say, well, you know, Jesus says that you ought not to judge. And so it is always almost always a defense mechanism to get somebody off your back or to try and expose them and their hypocrisy. 
And so the moment that you speak something definitive regarding ultimate truth or you seek to bring the scriptures to bear on a certain issue, it is not uncommon to be met with such a statement. And again, especially when you've just opposed a person's desire. Now, of course, we looked at that statement last week in verse 37, and the context was regarding your perspective of somebody who is actively seeking to harm you, and especially when they're seeking to harm you on account of the gospel. In fact, remember, starting in verse 35, picked up from verse 22, Jesus is giving some instruction with regard to how we ought to treat the enemy. And so the judgment there in verse 37 is not in reference to truth. It is not in reference to never bringing truth to bear on falsehood. It has nothing to do with speaking against that which is contrary to the ways and the purposes of God. Rather, it is a reference to your attitude toward the one who seeks to harm you. That you are not to judge. You are not to judge in a manner that leads to you condemning them. That is not our place. Rather, that is the place of God alone. We are not to pronounce cursing on them. We are not to seek retribution or harm. We're not even necessarily to, as we saw, seek our own justice. Which, of course, as we saw last time, was very much opposed to what the people were being taught by the Pharisees and the rabbis of this day. In fact, from a twisted understanding of Old Testament scripture, they were taught to both judge and curse the enemy. And so instead, Jesus begins to teach from this the side of this mountain to all these disciples that they are always to show grace. You are both to pardon and give in the face of their hostility, verses 37 and 38. You are to seek their good and all for the purpose of demonstrating a gospel of grace. And I don't have the time to review that passage, and so you can go back and listen to it. But that is the context of verse 37 when Jesus says, do not judge. In fact, for those who like to use this verse to try and silence people, that they are not to judge, that they are not to speak in a manner that confronts people, they conveniently never quote John chapter 7 and verse 24, where Jesus explicitly commands us to judge. He says there, do not judge according to appearance or with a superficial perspective or in a manner that doesn't approach an issue from a perspective of of truth or absolute truth and righteousness, but rather judge. So this is a command, judge with a righteous judgment. And so that is in the imperative mood, which, as you know, means that it is a command. In other words, if you are to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, then in some capacity, Jesus demands, he actually demands that you judge. You are to analyze every issue and discern from a righteous perspective. In fact, I'd say that one of the great perils of the church has always been a lack of righteous judgment, lack of true discernment, lack of viewing an issue or a statement or a situation, and especially many kinds of teachings with any true discernment. In fact, evangelicalism, for all of its strength, has become an increasingly mixed bag of falsehood and half-truths. In many ways, it reminds me of the days of the judges where the scriptures state that everyone was just doing what they felt was right in their own eyes. 
Most people are content to just go to church if it makes them feel good, then obviously something about that church is correct. Let's not get carried away with precision. Let's not press too hard for doctrinal or theological clarity. Let's not be too judgmental. Let's just get along. Let's not bring up anything controversial. Let's just love with this sort of never-defined love and be unified over nothing definitive. And so there is not much care for precision in our thinking. There is a tremendous lack of consistency, a lack of integrity. It's just this hodgepodge sort of listening to anybody and everybody, reading anything, making no particular judgments. In fact, again, to make a judgment is seen to be unchristian. And so there's just this sort of air that there is a certain level of good in everything. Just eat the meat, spit out the bones, don't question anybody's view, and just try and apply what you feel is most helpful for you. And that, in many ways, is the contemporary evangelical scene. In fact, I agree with one man who writes that this pervasive attitude in evangelical Christianity is what has caused true biblical Christianity as we know it to be in a state of fighting for its life in this country. And he wrote that 20 years ago. And so I think it's a reasonable statement to say that if any problem outstrips any other problem in the church, it is this increased lack of spiritual discernment. That is the ability to judge with a righteous judgment truth from error. And this really will be the death knell to biblical Christianity in this country. We're seeing it unfold rapidly before our eyes. Certainly, it's been the death knell to many of the mainline denominations and many local churches. In fact, we're in this building this morning because at some point, this denomination, the UCC, thought that superficial unity was of greater importance than something else, namely doctrinal truth and precision with theology. A vague sense of love, loosely defined, and certainly not by the scriptures, brought this church to its knees. In fact, you'll remember the sign out front on virtue, love, and unity. That kind of sappy, ill-defined, sentimental superficiality is ultimately what stuck this church in the grave. There was no premium on discernment, no premium on the accuracy for biblical truth. Love was never defined. Justice was never defined. Unity was never defined. Hope was never truly defined. And so in all of that, a gospel of love, justice, hope, and unity was therefore never defined. Rather, they falsely thought that being unflinching in the truth was far less important than something else. And sadly, that is why this church died. And if you didn't know, now the other UCC church up on 76th is also for sale. And again, why? Well, when you strip it all away, it comes down to a lack of discernment. It comes down to a lack of right judgment to truth and error, and therefore what the church is supposed to be and therefore do. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that bad decisions Faulty reasoning, superficial understandings of the scriptures, shallow knowledge of biblical truth, 
and therefore the absence of forming any true convictions that'll control your approach in difficult times and increasing cultural pressures are all contributing factors and have always been contributing factors that have brought more anguish to the church. And hear this, a lack of premium on the truth has brought more anguish to the church than persecution. Which is why, actually, it is very interesting that Jesus is going to teach here what he does in these verses this morning, immediately following a section on suffering, persecution. And so what is this message? What is this passage all about? Well, this is a section this morning in which he begins to lay out the peril of following the wrong spiritual teachers. It's the title of my sermon, The Peril of Following the Wrong Spiritual Teachers. Perhaps more dangerous to the church than persecution is the false teacher. I like what one man that you all respect said on this. He said, I'd rather the church be persecuted than fall into the hands of false teachers. I would rather Christians shed their blood than abandon their theology. I would rather see Christians crucified upside down than to have them let go of the truth of God in a consistent environment of compromise. In fact, there is no question historically that the lack of discernment, discrimination, and precision regarding the truth has cost the church far more than all the persecutions of the church combined. You show me a persecuted church and I'll show you a church that clings with tenacity to the truth. You show me an affluent, flourishing, comfortable church, and I'll show you a church that easily abandons the truth. And I think that is a very fair statement, historically speaking. As you comb through the annals of church history, what you discover is that the church was seemingly prosperous at a superficial level during times of weak pulpits, but persecuted during times of strong pulpits. And the reason, without question, is because they were so unbending on the truth. And when they were unbending on the truth, the church would flourish in a spiritual sense, but receive persecution. Why? Well, because uncompromised truth opposes. More than that, uncompromised truth confronts a sinful world. And yet during times in which the culture accepted the church and it seemed to prosper again in a sociological or superficial sense, that is always when you see perilous compromise in the pulpits and it is perilous because it results in the death of souls. And so the state of any given church always goes back to the strength of the pulpit and the integrity of the church leaders you have a church that is discerning and able to judge with a righteous judgment, you will have a church that prospers spiritually and a church that walks in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. But whenever you have a church led by what George Whitfield called velvet-mouthed preachers and leaders who are more concerned with being accepted by a sinful world or perhaps worse, accepted by nominal Christians and nominal Christianity, you might have an unpersecuted church perhaps, but it'll be unpersecuted on the pathway to hell. 
And that might sound like a hyperbolic statement to you, but it is the essence of this passage. It is the essence of Jesus' own words. And so the burden of our Lord in this text is for all true followers to be shrewdly discerning. Hear this, to be shrewdly discerning as to whom you call teacher. As to whom you regard as your spiritual teacher. At the end of the day, as we're going to see, to follow the wrong teacher is to find yourself potentially in a place of condemnation. For teachers deal in the realm of truth and error. They lead people into a true understanding of salvation or a false understanding of salvation. And so whenever a person speaks and especially claims to be speaking for God, they speak either truth or falsehood. And it is important to understand that there is zero neutrality on that. If it is not true, it can only be false. If it's not truth, it can only be Error. Despite what a postmodern, relativistic, subjective, syncretistic culture would have you believe. And sadly, what many churches have come to believe is if there's a little bit of virtue in everything. And so when you trim it all down, this is a passage in which we see a call for radical judgment call for spiritual discernment, a call to examine the one or ones whom you regard as teacher. And so the question becomes, so how can you know? How can you recognize such people? How do you recognize truth from error? Even more difficult, how do you distinguish between a faithful teacher and just a poor teacher? You might not be following an overtly false teacher or one who's intentionally trying to mislead you, which is how the scriptures characterize false teachers, but that is not to say that you might not be following a poor teacher or a bad teacher, one who lacks spiritual discernment despite very good intentions. Well, Jesus makes this clear, and because it is the difference between life and death, eternally speaking. And so this is crucial. This is a tremendously important issue. And so Jesus now turns his attention to call these people on the side of this mountain to examine why they follow whom they follow, why they submit themselves to certain people or don't submit themselves to certain people. And so, of course, Jesus is going to be contrasting himself here in the context with the premier teachers of the nation of Israel, which were the rabbis and the Pharisees, these self-appointed purveyors of the religious Judaic system. But it is a timeless teaching that I think has much application in our day. And so what we're going to see Jesus do here is lay out three criteria by which you can examine anyone who would call themselves teacher. Anyone who would claim to speak for God, anyone who would claim to be a teacher of God's people, And remember, this is a day in which the majority of the people were illiterate. They were very poor, and so they couldn't afford their own copy of the scriptures. That would have been very expensive. And so they couldn't just go to the word themselves like you can to test and see if what the teacher is saying is true. 
And so they needed other criteria. They needed a set of true external measurements by which they could discern a genuine, genuine leader and their faithfulness to true biblical teaching. And so the outline this morning is rather simple. Verses 39 through 40, we see the blindness of bad teachers. 41 through 42, we see the hypocrisy of bad teachers. And then in 43 through 45, we see the fruitlessness of bad teachers. So the blindness of bad teachers, the hypocrisy of bad teachers, and the fruitlessness of bad teachers. These are three pieces of external measurements for which you can begin to discern whether a person whom you regard as teacher is someone that you ought to follow. And I was tempted to make this into a multi-part series, especially in our day, but then I, I changed my mind, and because I assume that you're at this church this morning because you understand this to some degree, we are not a fancy church by any stretch of the imagination. Fanciest thing about us are these lights. <laughs> but the one thing that we are unbending on and that we strive for with great tenacity is accuracy in both our doctrine and practice. And so I assume that you're here this morning because in in some capacity you have done this. I assume that you're here this morning because you already understand these things. You understand the importance of these things. And so I don't feel the need necessarily to squeeze this one to death, though I might change my mind. And so my plan is to work through these three principles here this morning and then end with some concluding remarks. And so let's take a look at the first one, verses 39 through 40. This is the blindness of bad teachers. Notice again, please, he states, and a blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? For they will not both fall into a pit, and the pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. And so to make it simple, the principle here is if you want to know the purity and the accuracy of any teacher, then all you have to do is look to their disciples. Look to the ones who have spent their life learning from this teacher. In other words, ask the question, what has he actually produced? What is the quality of his disciples? In the ancient world, blindness was a ubiquitous problem. They didn't have the medicine that we have in our day or the various reasons or ways to address the reasons for why blindness would occur, and especially at an early age. And so blindness was a relatively common ailment among the ancients. And so the people of Israel were very familiar with this. They saw blindness just about everywhere. And so Jesus here picks up on this well-known experience and uses that as an opportunity to turn it into a parable to give some instruction and warning And so they would have understood exactly what he was saying, and you can surmise as well what he is saying. There were all kinds of pits and unfenced quarries and all kinds of rugged, rocky areas in first century Palestine. There would have been ditches and craggy precipices all alongside the road. If you've ever been to a third world country, you know what this is. But the picture here probably most fits most accurately the idea of a dry well And so you can understand the picture that he's painting. There's nothing helpful about a blind person trying to lead a blind person through such geography. And it's not something that's just merely dangerous, but the point to understand is that this is 
deadly. And so he begins with a very dramatic call, again, to judgment. A dramatic call to become discerning, to become shrewd in the who and the what and the how of whom you follow. There are many who claim to know the path to truth, the path to salvation, but are nothing more than blind guides and empty talkers. Men who speak with such confidence, men who speak with such arrogance, such self-promoting attitudes, these are people that are typically compelling. They are winsome. They have strong personalities. They have the ability to sell. They have the ability to make you laugh. They are very gifted at wooing the vulnerable. And yet in your blindness or spiritual deadness, as Jesus is saying here, you cannot see that they too are blind. And so an opening with such a dramatic and yet obvious illustration to set the stage, he then states in verse 40 these words. He states, and a pupil or a student is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. And so he switches the metaphor here from a blind, leading the blind to now a classroom or discipleship setting. And you'll notice that every single one of these illustrations reveals some kind of authority, submission, relationship, because that is what a teacher-student relationship is. It is a circumstance in which you are willfully, that's the key word, you are willfully placing yourself under the authority of another. In fact, there is no such thing as a true student who does not submit, nor is, there any, is it such thing that you have a true teacher who does not teach from a position of authority. And so there is tremendous influence in that situation. There's tremendous influence over the mind and the heart and the character and even the desires of the student. In fact, notice he doesn't state that when the student is fully trained, he will know what his teacher knows, but rather notice he will be like him. That is a holistic statement. This has to do with values. This has to do with ultimate truth. This has to do with those intangible shaping forces that are always present when a teacher is instructing the mind. In fact, the Hebrews knew well that the mind was always the pathway to the heart. There is no such thing as being able to address the mind or instruct the mind without also instructing the heart. And so make no mistake on this, but whatever form or fashion it comes teaching, hear this, teaching is always discipleship. It is always molding the heart. Think about that, by the way, with regard to whom you have teacher children. It is never just a mere transmission of propositional facts, but always a shaping of worldview and values and loves and desires. And why? Well, because the mind is always the pathway to the heart. Proverbs 3 and verses 5 through 6, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So here the parallel between the heart and the mind. There is this interconnectedness. There is a deep relationship between those two. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. And so it starts here with the mind. It leads to the heart. There is a submission that takes place, and then that in turn directs your steps. Controls the inevitable course of your life. And so teaching or propositional truth be put, being put into your mind is never just a neutral event. It is always shaping, always forming and influencing your loves and goals. It is determining what you understand to be virtue and hope and discern to be truth and error. And so he says that when a student has been fully trained, notice he will be like his teacher. He will be like him, not merely again with what he knows intellectually and propositionally, but he will be like him in terms of his character, in terms of what he loves. Teachers active in forming and shaping things like the conscience and convictions and what they claim to be ultimate truth. And so in terms of Jesus helping these disciples understand who they should follow, his point is that it is very Difficult to discern the reliability of a teacher based merely on what they say. Because talk is cheap. And so instead he says, look to their disciples. What do they produce? What do their disciples reveal to be their greatest loves? How do their disciples think about the world? How do their disciples think about God? How do their disciples think about ultimate reality and spirituality and heaven and hell? And what do their disciples reveal to be their greatest priorities? How do their disciples talk? What do their disciples reflect in their character? And so certainly in this day, Jesus has already been making some very grave attacks against the Pharisees because while they talk a very convincing talk, the proof is always in the pudding. And so do not look to the Pharisees, but look to the students of the Pharisees. In our day, this concept becomes helpful when you're considering who it is that you want to disciple you. Don't just take marriage advice or parenting advice from anybody. Rather, look to what they have produced. I'd even say it's a very helpful metric when choosing a church. There are many who choose a church for many different reasons. Maybe it's based on music, which, by the way, is the worst criteria to choose a church upon. Maybe it's based on programs. Maybe it's based on the giftedness of the preacher. But how many choose a church, I wonder, because they have watched and examined the lives of the people of that church. And because they understand that the people are a product of a particular leadership. Perhaps one of the greatest problems in modern evangelicalism is that we've been so enamored with the teacher in our celebrity culture that we've never actually taken the time to ask the question of what that teacher has produced. And not in terms of some slick megachurch or smooth running infrastructure and administration or even the number of books that they're able to publish and sell, but are you impressed with things like the men of that teacher's church? And God's calling on them to be leaders and workers and godly husbands and fathers and disciplers and protectors and sacrificers. Are you impressed with the women of that church? 
and their faithfulness to what the scriptures have called godly women to be? Are you impressed with the children of that church because it speaks of the parenting and the convictions? Are you impressed with the character of the people and the discipline of the people and the conviction of the people to perhaps do hard things for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God? Do you see a people compelled by holiness? Compelled by doing whatever it takes to bend their life under the glory of God? For week after week, year after year, the truth is that nobody matures. Nobody seems to actually put away sin. Nobody pursues a greater holiness. Nobody cultivates a deeper love for the person of Jesus Christ. Their, their talk, of course, may be at an all-time high, but when you look at the marriages, they seem to just remain the same, if not go backwards. Children remain unruly and unconverted. And the reality is that no one truly comes to Christ as a result of that church or ministry. And so if that is the case, and that should be a very good indication as the, to the state of the leadership. That should be a good indication if that leadership or that pastor has any business, frankly, in the pastorate. And so the principle of Jesus here is that as you decide whom you will follow, do not be impressed with their words, do not be impressed with personality, certainly do not be impressed with some, quote, vision or stories that you hear, but examine, hear this, examine their students. Examine their disciples. What have they produced? Because that is always the indication of the leader. Proof is in the pudding. The world, and especially the churches, is never, you know this, it's never at a shortage of talkers, but it is always at a loss for true godly leadership. Those who understand the path to true salvation and Holiness, something that many churches just don't seem to be concerned with anymore. A few pastors seem bothered by the lack of sanctification in their people. But those who are truly controlled by the word of God in every aspect of their life and their leadership, these are increasingly rare in our day. And yet it is what I think makes them so easy to spot. And not merely because they're unflinching and unapologetic in teaching what the scriptures demand of all who would call themselves a disciple, but they are surrounded by their own disciples who model them in their godliness. This is a very difficult thing to take an immature believer and grow them into maturity. And so when you see a person who's able to do that, and especially with many around them, then that is a person worth following. That is a person worth giving your mind and your ear and your heart to. Because again, the genuineness of that teacher will be seen in the disciples that he or she produces. Do they produce true disciples or false disciples? Do they produce mature disciples or immature disciples? Do they keep leaving a wreckage in the lives of those whom they claim to disciple? Or do they produce consistently good fruit? That is the question, and that is the first principle here that Jesus gives. Do not be impressed with words, personality, eloquence, size of ministry, 
the amount of books that are being published or any other fleeting measurement, but always look to what that man or that woman has produced in people. Are their disciples worthy of imitation? That is the bellwether of any spiritual teacher. In fact, think about your own life. What are you producing? To the husbands, is your wife the one whom you are responsible to shepherd worthy of imitation? And if not, what does that say about your leadership? Because your wife, biblically speaking, she is the product of your headship. What you see wrong in her is likely what is wrong with you. I had a professor once say that five years into your ministry, what's wrong with your church is what's wrong with you. I'm only in three, so I got two more. (laughs) But there's so much truth in that. Mom and dads, are your children worthy of imitation? What is that saying about you? If you're discipling someone right now, are they yet worthy of imitation? And because, make no mistakes, your strengths might eventually become their strengths, but their weaknesses may in fact reveal your weaknesses. And again, why? Well, because when your disciple is fully trained, they will be, fact, they will be like you. They will not merely know what you know, or think what you think, but they will love what you love. They'll despise what you despise. They'll cling to what you cling. They'll avoid what you avoid. Your passion will be their passion. Your virtues will be their virtues. Your vices and sins very potentially might be their vices and sins. Their speech will be your speech. Their character, your character. And ultimately, their godliness or ungodliness will be a reflection of your godliness or ungodliness. And anyone here who's a parent knows this. There is that faithful day in which you see or hear a very disappointing word or attitude come flying out of your child. And you realize that they got that from somewhere. And so there is that moment in which terror strikes your heart because you realize that they were merely modeling you. They are modeling your words and your attitude. So Jesus very much understands this. He understands that the nature of the church is going to be one of discipleship. It'll be one of passing on, not merely knowledge, but of a holistic life. And so certainly in the context, Jesus is contrasting truth from error. He is contrasting the saving message of himself with that damning message of the Pharisees. But there is real application here for us. As you decide whom you'll follow or whom you're going to listen to on any topic of the Christian faith, you would do well to examine what they have produced. Is it worthy of emulation? Or are they one for whom you do well to avoid? That is the question, and that is key. Very important. But then notice, number two, come to the hypocrisy of bad teachers, 41 through 42. This is the hypocrisy of bad teachers, and this one's difficult. States 41, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in yours? 
you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is actually a very humorous picture. I find it interesting that nowhere in the Gospels is Jesus ever recorded as laughing or telling a joke. But here's how we know, I suppose, that he had some kind of humor. He says, why do you look at the speck that is the, the car foss, the, the flake of wood or the, the chaff? Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log or the dacos that is in your own eye? Now, a dacos was the main beam of a building. And so this is almost cartoon-like. How do you not notice the main beam of a building swinging out of your eyes? You club people, but can somehow critically obsess over a tiny piece of chaff in somebody else. And so he is speaking, obviously, in some dramatically hyperbolic language here, but the mark of a bad or a false teacher is one who is so busy telling everybody else every little thing that is wrong with them, but never bothers to deal with that deadly, corrupting sin in their own life. How many pastors have fallen, and we'll just say in the past five years, due to the most grievous of sins? Sins that have destroyed families, destroyed churches, sins that have absolutely decimated the faith of their followers. If you're following anything going on right now with what's going on with Ravi Zacharias, you understand this. This is a serious problem. Like, do you realize that your greatest spiritual teacher, just in how God has designed things, may have the ability to corrupt and destroy your faith if they are found to be unfaithful? Some of you remember this, but I think back to the, the disaster of the fall of Mars Hill Church in 2014 with Mark Driscoll. When he fell, the amount of devastating and truly heartbreaking stories that came out of that, whose uh, people whose faith were utterly shipwrecked were virtually impossible to count. And all because he, their great spiritual leader, was unfaithful. And so husbands and fathers... Do not ever underestimate the power that you have to either build up or utterly destroy the faith of your wife or children. Back to the term here in verse 42 of you hypocrite. It's the word hypocrites. It's, it's a word that's used to speak of a play actor. That is one who is fake one who is skilled at playing the part. This is one who learns the language of Christianity. This is one who learns to say the right things, who learns how to say the right things. This is one who understands the power of words, the power of influence, the power of creating an atmosphere or a culture, but has zero intention on dealing with their own heart and being authentically transformed. And why? Well, because they are fake. Play actor. Hypocrite. 
And Jesus was so fed up with external religion. He understood its deadly power. He was fed up with the art of conformity. He was fed up with the art of playing the part. There are a few things that will destroy faith faster than constantly talking and constantly telling people what the right thing is to do, but all the while your life rarely matching your profession. Beloved, let me tell you that preaching... The act of preaching is so easy in certain ways. It's a lot of work. But it's easy to stand up and open up the Word of God and deliver a sermon and then go home. But it is hard. It is hard to live that Word. It is hard when you spend 30 plus hours a week marinating in a text of scripture and making certain that you do not stand up on Sunday as a hypocrite. How many pastors love to preach the word and love their pulpit and love to be the guy but are negligent in having to be scrutinized by that word. This is a problem. It's a problem. How many husbands are so gifted at telling their wives or their children what they need to do? And yet the first set of difficulty in their own life, they model anything and everything but what Jesus has called them to do. Constantly finding fault, constantly dealing with matters within the home or within the church from a critical spirit. And yet never take the time to do an honest exam of their own life. And perhaps because they are tremendously gifted at justifying themselves with excuses. That was the Pharisee. Perhaps the challenge of being in a well-taught church for any length of time is that you hear sound teaching and you hear sound instruction so often that you slip into a place where you begin to presume that you are therefore faithful to that word. As if sanctification was something done by osmosis. But few things are more devastating to those who have been entrusted to you than that insidious reality of hypocrisy. And I do not say this lightly, but do not be surprised if your children end up rejecting the, rejecting the faith because all they hear are words. And what they rarely see and what they need to see, and I'm pleading with you on this because I understand it's emotionally challenging and I understand that, but what they need to see is the word faithfully taught and lived before them. from a place of deep, deep conviction. Deep conviction. 
hypocrisy is a destroyer of faith. There is a very great cost in failing to first deal with self. And notice, Jesus in in no way denies the necessity to still deal with your brother. And in verse 42, but you must first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There is a necessity to still deal with the chaff in your brother's eye. But if you try and pull out the chaff without first dislodging the beam, then don't be surprised when you club them to death with the hypocrisy of your own life. In fact, it's a beautiful thing when a brother or sister in Christ comes to you in humility and seeks to address a sin or address a weakness that is in your life. But they approach it as one who has also dealt with that very same issue. And now having developed the necessary skills and the character to dislodge the main beam of a building, they're actually far more effective in addressing the chaff and because they now understand these things from experience. And in this way, become a tremendous discipler. Let me also add on this that an important implication from this this principle here is the importance of being able to actually examine the life of your spiritual leaders. Again, this can be a major problem within larger churches or within the culture of celebrity pastors. You only see what they publish. You only hear what they teach. But what you can't do, even though you're called to do it here by Jesus, is also examine the integrity of their life. If you don't have access to their life, then how can you discern as to whether or not they're a hypocrite? If you can't discern as to whether or not they're a hypocrite, then how can you discern if you should follow them? In fact, this is why I say often to many people that if your pastor doesn't know your name, then that is a problem. You are not being shepherded. But it's also a problem because if they don't even know your name or they don't have the time for you, then pretty good chance that you've never gotten close enough to examine their life. Something, by the way, that anyone who would desire to be an elder or leader in this church must also consider, you do not have the privilege of not living in a glass house to some capacity. At a more personal level, this is why being a husband or a father is a huge and weighty responsibility. You live in very close quarters where there are always watching eyes and watching ears and where much of your personal life is in the perpetual state of being examined. So does your life match what you profess? Or are you always the preacher? Are you always talking and teaching, constantly finding fault, constantly speaking critically of everything wrong with everybody else, but you have never removed the beam? And I am telling you on the authority of Jesus' own words that there are few things that kill faith faster than hypocrisy. And wherever there is hypocrisy, there is almost always legalism. 
And why? Well, because for the hypocrite, think about this, it is always, it is always about the externals. It is always about appearance and perception, the demand for compliance, obedience, but the peril is that they never address the heart. They never deal with the well from which all external realities flow. And so the hypocrite preaches hard, demands results, but never deals with the heart or conforms their own life. This is what Jesus dealt with constantly with these Pharisees. And beloved, that will extinguish any spark of faith every single time. Whether it's leadership within the church or within the home. But in terms of the church or what would eventually be the church here, Jesus says when considering a leader, get access to their life. And if you see consistent hypocrisy, and I use that word consistent very intentionally because you will never find perfection. We're all sinners. We're all very gifted at sinning. You know, the old statement, people often say they don't like to go to church because it's filled with a bunch of hypocrites. What should be your response? We got room for one more, right? We all need Christ. We're all in desperate need of the forgiving work of Jesus Christ, but where you find consistent hypocrisy in leadership, you would do well to run fast and far. And finally, number three, the fruitlessness of bad teachers, 43 through 45, fruitlessness of bad teachers. Verse 43, notice he states, for there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. Now, this is similar to that first principle. And so the essence, once again, is learning to train your eye to look to the product of a person's life. What are they producing? What are they known for? Again, you should not be taking marital advice from the one whose marriage is not doing well. You should not be taking parenting advice from the ones whose children are uncontrolled. And so in a broader spiritual sense, what is the tangible evidence for why you should follow a person? Well, it's by asking the question of what true fruit have they produced? And when I say true fruit, I mean fruit in accord to what the Bible declares to be fruit. Again, the church, I am unimpressed with large ministries as if the largeness of a ministry is any evidence of faithfulness or fruitfulness. I'm also unimpressed with smaller ministries for after all, if you are faithful, Jesus says that you will bear fruit, which includes conversion. There are those who think that a small ministry is somehow a mark of faithfulness. You got these guys who just like to preach their pews empty been faithful. And so the question is, going back to that first principle, you, you may have a large ministry, you, you may have a small ministry, but frankly, none of that matters. Rather, what is the makeup of the people? 
Again, is there a passion for holiness and the glory of Christ? Is there a passion for maturing marriages, maturing children? Do the people desire and actually succeed in putting away sin? Many desire to. Do people desire and actually succeed in being unfettered by the lusts of this world? Is there a driving conviction to make disciples of all nations, which is the mission of the church? Or do we just want as many people in the seats on Sunday as possible because we have determined that mere numbers equal fruit? You will always know the heart of a leader by what that leader produces. For a bad tree cannot bear good fruit, and a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Thorn bushes cannot grow figs, and briar bushes cannot grow grapes. And so the fruit, or what is produced, is always a commentary on the state of the heart. In fact, notice verse 45. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Remember, we're talking about spiritual leaders. That is a verse primarily with reference to teaching. If you really want to know what's in a person's heart, what do they say with their mouth? What do they reveal to be their delight? What do they talk about most? What gets them excited? What gets them angry? What are the words expressed when life and ministry are going well? What are the words expressed when life and ministry is going hard? All that reveals the state and the condition of of the heart. It reveals their hope. It reveals their deepest convictions. It shows what they think, and it shows what they value. And so when it comes to discerning or judging the right spiritual teacher or shepherd, what do they talk about most? How soaked are their words and their sermons? and their counsel with the gospel and the glory of Christ? How driven are they to see God exalted in all things as they seek to move people on a mission for the cause of the gospel? And so Jesus here looking at his disciples who were most familiar with the teachers and the Pharisees of Israel, he says, examine their disciples, look to the consistency of their life in light of their teaching and look to the fruit or fruitlessness of their own personal lives. And why? Because talk is both revealing, but also cheap. Remember John the Baptist said in chapter three of Luke that the sign of any who would truly fear God is that they bear fruit and hear this, they bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It is easy to claim repentance. It's easy to live it for a short time. It's easy to preach the right things and say the right things and thereby fool many people into believing that you are something other than you really are. But the one thing that cannot be denied is the product of what their life produces or does not produce. And so the point of the passage to sum it up in a statement is, so be wise as to whom you call teacher. 
And do not take this warning lightly. It is a very simple message, but can have extreme consequences. The world and the church are filled with empty talkers and deceitful schemers who, while claiming to be wise, are only fools. There are many who have garnered a large following, but the sad conclusion of their life will be a life of eternity spent inside of a dark pit and filled with their blind followers. They are blind. They are filled with hypocrisy. They are filled with bad fruit and evil deeds, as Jesus says, but disguised perhaps as true spiritual produce. And so Jesus is saying, essentially, he said it in the beginning of chapter 5 to Peter, James, and John, and he will say it again. But he is saying, essentially, to this group of professing disciples, so just be busy following me. And so the question for us is, so who or what are you following? Everybody's following somebody. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. You are receiving input from somebody as to what is ultimate truth, and you are making some very critical decisions based on that conclusion. And so the question is, why are you following them? What is the criteria that you've used to determine that decision? And if you are a Christian, why do you follow whom you follow? What what is it about their life? What is it about their teaching that is moving you toward the path of salvation and growing you increasingly into the image of Jesus Christ? And so this is a serious choice, whom you choose. Perhaps the most critical decision that you'll ever make, and because attached to it is eternity. So who is your teacher? Who are you following In a day replete with infinite access to just about every podcast and book and sermon and ministry, these are deceptively dangerous times. That is the question, and that is of critical importance. Who are you submitting yourself to to be the shaper and the guardian of your soul? Next time we'll see Jesus use this as a springboard to close out his teaching And so he's going to finish with some very strong words. He begins hard and he will end hard, but it is a very important passage. And so next time, Lord willing, we'll have the opportunity to see what he says. But until then, we would do well, I think, to think very critically about what he has said, and especially in such times as this. Let's pray. And Father, thank you again for the opportunity to spend time in your word, though difficult they may be. Pray that by the power of the Spirit, you'd help us to be a discerning church. May we not be impressed with that which is not truly of you, but deeply committed to that which is. We do thank you for the clarity and the straightforwardness of the nature of your word, that that you have given us such things as this to know, and, and we understand that it is always for our good. So may all of us in this room follow the great teacher, Jesus Christ. May everyone here know him as the only way and truth and life, and that apart from him, there is no salvation. 
May we be convinced by the power of your spirit in our own hearts that there is no other name by which we must be saved. So I do pray that you'd lead us as a church in increasingly difficult days with the grace and the humility to live your truth, which is ultimate truth and the only truth. To live the way that is consistent with Jesus Christ, the only one who can save. And so may that be our heart. May that be what defines this church. And so I do ask these things and ask that you grant them as we now sing praises for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.